Cleish, here we are, we're back again after a very long break with episode 78. Let's make her great. Oh, I've gone back to rhyming, I hadn't done <laughs> that for a while. You hadn't done that, but that's because you ran out of rhymes. Funnily enough, numbers do come up again and again. They do every 10, you get the same thing, you have to try and rhyme. I know, at least you get consistency from them, if nothing else. And as a Virgo, we like consistency, we like... Well, it's Virgo season. Let's celebrate. Is it? I see. I don't know about these things, oh, so yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Oh yes. I am. A... <laughs> Wait. What are you? Are you a? Leo? I'm a Leo. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Well, Virgos, they reign supreme. As we approach witching season, I feel well, like that is true. Virgos are the witchiest of all. Oh well, that's nice. Yeah. Why? Eh, there's a woman. That represents our culture. <laughs> that's usually you've got a lion, we've got a woman. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. that's fair. Okay, but a good enough reason, if any. No, I I feel like because Virgos happen right as you're approaching autumn, and things start to get a bit colder, the leaves turn a bit orange. Horror films, they do. And Hocus Pocus are on. It's that's it's the Virgos are introducing that to the world every every year, just like numbers. Well. Comes back Do around. you know what, McLeish? We thank you for your service. You're very welcome. Thank you for bringing forth the autumn. It is nearly spooky season. It is upon us. I'm excited. Ooh. I don't have plans yet. Well, I have one set of plans already, That's okay. actually. Got a murder mystery again this year. <gasps> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. What's new? Anything new? What have I done? Oh, I went on holiday. That was fun. Oh, where'd you go? I went on a cruise. How was it? It was a delightful time, let me tell you. would highly recommend it. It was the first time I ever went um, on a cruise and uh, went with Virgin Voyages. It's not sponsored, but if you want to send us on holiday, we're here for it. <laughs> is that Richard Branson? Is that him? It is, it is indeed. Richard, it is indeed. <laughs> get on it. It's up. Uh, I went to lots of places. I went to Barcelona. Uh, we picked the Very cruise nice. up from Barcelona. Barcelona's beautiful. Okay, granted, I didn't spend much time in Barcelona because our flight was delayed, so we ended up getting there at, like, nine o'clock at night as opposed to five. Yeah, um, so I didn't really get to see much of it, but it was very, very pretty. Nice. Loved very my kind of my kind of architecture and aesthetic, yeah, very, which was very, great. Like, Baroque, gothy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nice. absolutely. It was beautiful. But yeah, cruise was great. Cruise was no kids allowed and listen i'm i'm not the i'm not the biggest fan of kids i quite like okay. a kid free zone yeah, 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 uh, yeah so that so that was rather that was rather lovely but where else did we go ship docked at marseille but we didn't get off there but we also went to Cannes, which was lovely nice. i really wanted to see Cannes and live my best kind of agatha christie life then we also went to palma and ibiza as well so Ooh. Are we partying? Yeah, we got around. I have never ate so much food in my life because <laughs> obviously your food's all included on the cruise. Marvelous. So And it was some great food. Lots of options for us veggies out there, which That's is a rarity. Of, I, uh, holidays I are always a struggle. Absolutely, absolutely. But no, there was lots of very good options. Everybody was delightful. And do you know what, as well, the... Cruise Line's brand is very much all about people kind of like 
being themselves and stuff like that. And that ship was the most welcoming, friendly ship, like just space that I think I've ever kind of had a holiday in. It was like absolutely great. We made some cruise pals when we were on the ship, which was very sweet. Oh, and this is the other, oh my God, this is the other thing that I meant to say to you actually. So on like the, I can't remember what night it is. It was like the third to last day, maybe. On Virgin Voyages, they do a big thing called Scarlet Night, which is kind of like a big party night, but it's like, but it's got like a story behind it and stuff like that. Now, granted, I didn't really get to part, we didn't really get to partake in it properly because the ship was a rocking and my friend I was with is very sensitive to motion sickness and she was a bit sick that night. So I stayed with her until she felt better. Um... But we were talking to one of the, they call them the cast members. It's kind of like your sort of hosts and entertainment um, people. Um, the lovely Stephen. And he was talking about Scarlet Night. And a few of us he was talking to would never kind of done this thing. And he's like, oh yeah, it's like an immersive theatre night that's, uh, that happens on the ship. And there's like spaces throughout the ship and you can follow characters round the round the ship and kind of follow your own story and he's like it's by this theatre company they've got a show in New York called Sleep No More and I was like hold up are we talking about Punch Drunk (laughs) and he's like yeah do you know them and I was like do I know them (laughs) I never knew they did ship stuff yeah so I'm so because I didn't really get to see much I got to see bits of it and the bits of what I saw looked so cool but this whole like immersive theatre night on this ship is by Punch Drunk. That's amazing. I know. So I think you should really go on that holiday just for that. <laughs> I would. I would. I don't. I feel like I would be your friend, though. I don't think I have very good sea legs. Well, see, listen, we, we did mess up because we meant to take motion sickness tablets with us and we forgot. So okay. that's on us. But it was just so funny that he was like, oh, yeah, they've got this show called Sleep No More. And I was like, hod the bus, I sent. <laughs> that's magic. I was like, are you talking about? And I was like, I need to tell Chris McQueen this. He'd love this. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, it was awesome. So yeah, we'd fully recommend uh, a cruise to anyone because it was great fun and a very cost-effective way to see lots of places. My pals from New York, three of them, no, two of them, are currently working as entertainers on a cruise ship. And uh, mm-hmm. they're married, the two of them. Aww. And uh, one is the pianist for like... A little cabaret act uh-huh, and the other uh-huh. one just got a job doing something else random i think on the ship just so that he could be with kg it was very cute oh um, i love that so and uh, so um, you wouldn't miss him oh that's very sweet that's yeah. very cute that was very that was a uh, good fun so that all happened at the start of start of july that was that's a very long time ago now <laughs> <laughs> Oh but my very God. nice. Um, but yeah, that's my exciting thing that has occurred in the break. Magic. The only thing I've really done was the fringe. Um, you did, yes, of course. Which I won't go on about for too long, but I did a show called A Mirrored Monet, which was a brand new piece of musical theatre, and it was about Monet, the artist, and mm-hmm, some of his mm-hmm. pals. And it was it focused more on his regret about his relationship with his first wife and uh, it was gorgeous i had a great time 
It was lovely. And I got to go and see it. I went on your opening day because it was the only Woo-woo. day I had off work. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was that was really good. That was really that was it was really nice. It was really lovely. And as I said to you pre-pod, I learned a lot of things about these artists that I did not yes, know. So that's yes. always fun. We love the, a bit of educational theatre. I don't think I really realised how the art world worked in that period where there was people in a salon, the Beaux Art mm-hmm. Salon, that were saying yeah. what was good and what was bad. And they were making the decisions about what was in vogue uh-huh. in French art at the time and yeah. how they would do exhibitions for the rejects, just get chucked into this like, oh, this is the rubbish, they didn't make it. And so that they had is to. Very strange, yes. And yeah. I think they really, really, really bought into what critics had to say about the art. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it just sounds like it was. I'm sure the art world is still incredibly cutthroat, but it just sounded so brutal. Yeah. And also, money had a huge say in who became successful mm-hmm. and who didn't. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Probably still very much the case. I mean, it's still the case in acting, I can tell you that for free. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> happens oh, in all the arts no oh it's not good it's no. not good but um no i thought it was a lovely little show it actually it gave me like lab om vibes which i quite yeah. liked yeah oh yeah i can yeah. see that um, yeah, yeah yeah which was nice the music had a slightly sondheimy feel which i really liked mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that it wasn't i mean sondheim's whole thing was that he didn't want to write songs that folk left the theater humming it was more uh-huh. about the story and i feel like that was what this was kind of like that you didn't yeah, really leave humming a tune, but you did leave having mm-hmm. heard the lyrics and understood the story. Yeah. That's really my only thing yeah. that's happened. Fun times. Thank you, everyone, that has come back to listen to us once again. We apologise for our absence, but... It's just a busy finally... time. <laughs> it's a busy time. Our paths have finally crossed, finally. So, it's all good. So, we're here and we're back with some more spooky stories. Spooky stories. I and hope. I don't, well, who knows what I've chosen. Maybe I've decided to take things down a boring route. Maybe I'm going to talk about trains or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you're a fan of trains, no offence. It's just not my cup of tea. No, uh, yeah. It's each to their own, each to their own. It's all yeah. good, it's all good. Um, well, who's first this week for story time? Because last time you gave us the World's End murders. I did. You did say that your next story was going to be a continuation of that, but whether that is what we're getting, we do, we do not know. It's still all up for grabs. Okay, so, as you said, last time I said I was going to continue to talk about Angus Sinclair and his potential mm-hmm. link to Bible John, but yes. I will come back to that. Okay. I will. Okay. So, for just now, I have a brand new story to tell you about a man... <gasps> Who was called Wee Eddie. Wee Eddie? Wee Eddie. Okay. Should we be going or to Wee Eddie? Or was Wee Eddie a psychopath? (laughs) (laughs) Probs no. (laughs) So, the reason I'm kind of leaving Bible John hanging in the air is because it it felt like such a heavy hitter. And the more research I did, the more... There was just so much to go through and so much to filter through to find like the the good nuggets. And so uh-huh. I decided to go for this one because it's a good story, but also twist a ruse. But 
it it didn't feel I didn't feel ready to tackle the Bible drawn thing quite yet. That's f- no, that's fair. Bible drawn case is a pretty hard case. It's a doozy. Case, so, but that's I'm thinking soon. Enough. I'm thinking maybe next time or the time after. Okay, fair enough. Well, I'll know not to do it since you're doing it. Fabulous. That at least. <laughs> <laughs> so for now. A policeman walking his early morning beat in Dumbarton spotted smoke filtering from a top floor flat. Rushing up the stairs, he managed to force his way in and called for a fire engine on his radio. He learned from the neighbours it was wee Eddie's flat. And he hadn't been seen all day, but that wasn't unusual because he worked very odd hours as a security guard. Perhaps wee Eddie wasn't home and the smoke damage would be the main concern from this fire. The policeman made his way from room to room through the smoke, searching for any evidence that Eddie was still at home. There was nothing. The flat was empty. He was about to leave and let the firemen do their job when he spotted an open trap door to the attic. There, on a blood-soaked mattress, lay the battered body of wee Eddie Catonio. Sprinkled atop his body and scattered around his bludgeoned head, lay dozens of photographs of naked women. Oh. It's deemed likely that the killer had used a hammer or similar instrument to beat the victim to death before setting the fire ablaze in an attempt to hide the murder and destroy any evidence. But the killer hadn't anticipated the local Bobby doing his rounds. Eddie was a quiet, uninteresting man who kept to himself and worked two jobs as a security guard and an optical technician. He was no bother. He had many female visitors, but he was single, and it was 1979, a time of liberation, and what he and the women got up to was their own business. Fair enough. So who would have motive to kill him in such a manner? Had he been having an affair with a married woman, and an irate husband killed him in a fit of rage? Had he security guarded too hard and ticked somebody off? All the police had to go on was that he told relatives that morning of his plans to meet an acquaintance, but didn't elaborate. But we Eddie had a minging secret. Oh no. He had the kind of charisma and chat that could convince women to come over to his dingy home and strip off for a nudie pic. Okay. Oh, I don't know. Where is this going? <laughs> <laughs> Little did the neighbours know that he had a knick-knack stall at the Barras where he would sell pictures under the counter to punters who would also be encouraged to, dis- to persuade their wives and girlfriends to participate in his little scheme. Oh, no. Oh, no. We Eddie's a wee dirty. I don't like this. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we Eddie, the 63-year-old, was one of the city's leading porn merchants who even produced the odd film. <laughs> okay, this is not... <laughs> I was anticipating this episode to go, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> Twists! <laughs> the list of motives for his murder has suddenly grown much larger. Fair. <laughs> In his home studio darkroom... They, the police found boxes and boxes of pictures ranging from soft porn to the absolute obscene. Hundreds of women in a range of poses. So now we have to consider, had one of the aspiring models been upset to learn that their pictures were being sold to strange men? 
had an angry relative turned up to get the pictures back and fought with Eddie. But as well as the women visitors, neighbours told police that a man was a regular at the flat. He was called Gus. Gus was quiet and unassuming, much like we Eddie, and didn't give the neighbours much cause for concern. However, behind closed doors, the two men had bonded over their shared enthusiasm for photographing women in explicit poses. Gus would seek out gullible women in the dance halls of Glasgow's East End and persuade them to pose for his pal to keep the seedy bric-a-brac stall alive. Here, I wrote this about two months ago. I'm having a good time. I'm quite enjoying what I came up with. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read this I in, in oh months. My God. Also, can we just appreciate the versatility of the batteries? You really can get anything. Oh, yeah, there. you can. You can get whatever you're looking for. Recently, whatever somebody was crocheting willies. That was a recent yeah. thing you could buy at the batteries. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah, you can get whatever you like. Eddie taught Gus how to develop black and white photos of his own, but they fell out when Eddie refused to show him how to develop in colour. Had Gus killed Eddie in a fit of rage? Or did he kill him because he knew too much? Knew too much, I say. Too much about what? Well, we shall find out. But Gus had an alibi for the night of the murder in July. He was at his mother-in-law's for dinner with his wife. While his alibi seemed to clear him of any involvement, detectives remained suspicious of this man, Gus. Neighbours were spoken to. They even managed to trace some of the women photographed. But with no witnesses, no reports of rows or noise from his house at the time of the murder, and no murder weapon, the trail for the killer went cold very quickly. The The friend he was meeting was never traced. Maybe it was Gus. Probably was Gus. Forensics were in their infancy back then, but police had the foresight to bag up his clothes, locks of his hair, and the photographs, and stored them away. There were other murders needing their attention, and nobody really cared about a seedy old man with a dirty habit. Wee Eddie's murder was filed and forgotten. It's likely his murder file will stay locked in a drawer, with undetected stamped across it for a very long time. Besides, the man suspected at the time is now also dead. Could it be that Gus forced his wife to give him a false alibi so that he could bludgeon Eddie to death? Could it be that Gus had a history of violence and the habit of killing? Did Eddie perhaps know of Gus's crimes and was ultimately silenced? I think that that is incredibly likely because Gus was Angus Sinclair. (gasps) Ho! Oh, plot twist! (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So... (laughs) We Eddie was pals with Angus Sinclair's from last week's episode. I and my detective friends from 1979 share the theory that Angus Sinclair was forced to silence We Eddie because he knew too much about his crimes from 1977 and beyond. Oh my gosh. In all my research, I also found out that Angus had once carried out an armed robbery in 1976 in Moody'sburn where he and his brother-in-law accomplice, Gordon Hamilton, burst into a house, tied up a 10-year-old girl and her father, and waited for the rent man to come so they could rob him of his takings. And in this robbery, Angus used a hammer. So, he has form 
for using uh-huh. hammers in attacks. Yep. I also discovered that when it came time to interview him about Eddie and his potential involvement, he was phoned in advance. So it gave him time to prepare an alibi, which his wife complied with. Okay. So, the saga of Angus Sinclair continues. I will leave it there for now, but next week I have even more to discuss with you about him, including his potential link to Bible John. (gasps) Oh my gosh! Oh, it just kept on coming. (laughs) This is the issue, is that every time I went to do some Sinclair investigations, I'd be like, well, he was doing this as well, so I need to just... I need to take it one oh time, one thing at a time. I don't, I don't know why I didn't put two and two together and think Gus, what that's Gus short for. And Gus. <gasps> oh my god! What a twist! What a twist! Well, I have to say, I applaud you for being very mature throughout that story because you do have like the brain of a twelve-year-old. It's so, true. It's very true. I've matured like, so over the past really, two months. I was gonna clearly since the last time <laughs> we've recorded that you have you've grown up because <laughs> you do. <laughs> I was able to talk about, I mean, I did use the term nudie pics because it, it <laughs> made me laugh. Um, but I obviously got it out of my system when I wrote the story before. Well, cl- exactly. Clearly, yeah. you kind of, you worked, you worked through that. But, <laughs> oh my God. So he really did go on the rampage, this man. Yeah, he, he just didn't know when to stop chopping and bludgeoning and slicing and dicing. But I mean, this, I suppose this is like the, like with the continued um, crimes of, Angus Sinclair, that he he probably should have just stayed in prison when they had him there the first time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they just he just kept getting away with stuff or getting off lightly for things. Yeah, and obviously like, he never uh... he was never done for this because they they don't know for sure if it was him. So is that still technically a cold case? I think technically, but yeah, um, or it's maybe it's it's not been looked at for a very long time i don't think so mm-hmm. it was the detectives in the 70s were like well we think angus did this but they never had anything yeah, on right, it okay um, yeah. and i just don't know if anybody's looked into it since maybe maybe now maybe now's the time people can start looking into the creepy i think he was dubbed the porn king <laughs> which is really gross imagine having that as your nickname you don't want you don't you don't want that as your nickname Eddie, the Come porn on. king <laughs> it's not nice it's not nice oh no oh as if we eddie didn't conjure up enough images <laughs> what happened to all these pictures are these just in like an evidence vault somewhere well it did say that it his clothes his hair and the pictures all got bagged up and then filed away i don't think they did, ever did anything with that so they're just sitting in a box somewhere probably Listen, there's people in Glasgow just now who don't realise that their granny or their great-granny have got pictures in a box. (laughs) Oh, that's very awkward. Mind you, the 70s, it's probably just their mum. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably not quite grannies and great-grannies. Depends what age they were at the time. We're not talking 1870s here, like... No. So welcome back to the second rec break where we will give you a couple of recommendations. So mine this week is just kind of by chance spotted that Hex from the National Theatre has just landed on NT Live. 
So I recommended Ooh. it at the time when I saw it in January. Uh-huh. However, it is now available for viewing in your own home. And I would like to recommend it once again to see my pal Rosie Graham doing her thing as Rose in Hex, which is like a retelling of Sleeping Beauty with gorgeous music. Lisa Lamb, who is amazing at playing this kind of kooky little fairy. Um, Lisa Lamb was in Celtic Women. Did you ever listen yes. to Celtic Women? Yes. Oh my God. See, when you said that name there, I was like, I definitely know that name. But oh my God, Celtic Women, what a well, throwback. I mean, who Celtic doesn't have a Celtic Women era in their life? Oh my God. I mean, they just keep going as well. They keep spurning them out. It's like, <laughs> it, it's um, like a never ending revolving door of Celtic Women. Uh, but yes. Lisa Lamb, Lisa Lamb was a Celtic woman and she played uh, the lead in the show. She was the fairy. Aww. It is just, it's a gorgeous show. And I think it deserves to be seen by more people because the first time around it got kind of slated, but I think it was completely undeserved. So I really, really recommend it. And I hope people go away and watch it and enjoy it. Um, and if oh, you've got fantastic. National Theatre Live, let me know because I'd like to use your login. <laughs> <laughs> Help, help him out here, people, please. Yes, please. Give him a hand here. Give him a hand. <laughs> um, well, this week, I am recommending a wee cheeky book <gasps> for cheeky. you all. That's not like me at all. Um, so my recommendation is a book called The Whispering Muse by Laura Ooh. Purcell, which I recently um, read. Uh, Laura Purcell is a very classic sort of gothic horror uh, writer, um, I'd bought her books before for my mum for a couple of Christmas presents, but this is the first one of hers that I picked up that I saw and was like, this sounds very much my, my kind of vibe. My cup of tea. Um, yep, so it's set in, I think it's like Victorian turn of the century theatre world. It doesn't actually, I don't think it ever specifies when, but it gives that kind of vibe from the, the language used. And it is basically about this girl that ends up working um, at a theatre as a dresser for this lead actress um, who may or may not have has made a deal with um, one of the muses, one of the Greek muses. So lots of spooky things abound and okay. there's some teeth falling out and some people coughing up blood. Um, I love it. And lots of strange happenings. But the one thing I loved about it is that it's really, really ambiguous as to whether she really has made a deal with this sort of devil okay. or whether it's all just strange coincidences that are caused by other things. And I kind of love that in a gothic horror novel when it's not explicitly supernatural. It could just be that there is a rational reason behind it, but it, it's very... It's done in such a way that it, it could be something spooky maybe um but it was really good it was also super easy to read and it's quite short as well um okay so if you do kind of struggle with like trying to get through kind of heftier books it is yeah. a very very quick read um it took me about a week to get through which is quite quick for me considering i only read at night so <laughs> yeah nice that's cool um, yeah, yeah yeah so i highly recommend that one and then you can go off and find her other other works out there as well Sounds good. I feel like someone else has recommended that to me recently. Somebody it's also a work, very pretty book. Very oh, pretty it. hardback. Yeah, they yeah, say yeah. don't judge a book by its cover, but it matters. 
I very much do. I had a whole talk with a Waterstones um, sales assistant one day when I was buying books about how I will buy books based on their cover. Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> Every single time. I'm a sucker for a good cover. Me too. Lovely. There is perhaps no other industry that courts controversy quite like the realm of science. Yeah. Here we are, Hannah once again talking about Victorian science. There's a shock. Um, <laughs> I like to stay on brand. <laughs> um, so the Victorian era marked the emergence of not only new technology, but posed new questions to its enlightened population. And a rather big one emerged in 1859. On the Origin of Species, or to give the work its full title, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life, take a breath, written by English naturalist Charles Darwin, was a rather radical work for its time. But he might have been good with his work, not great with the titles, evidently. <laughs> a lot of words. A lot yeah. of words. Um, so it introduced the now familiar concept of evolving species and that we and all living creatures adapt to our territory along the generations. Known as natural selection, Darwin's theory was perfectly simple. We either adapt or we die, basically, to put it in a nutshell, yeah. save you yeah. reading the book. <laughs> yeah. Kind of the idea behind it. His work was particularly controversial as it directly challenged the teachings of the church. It's fair to say that their own teachings were often being interwoven with scientific developments of the time. Darwin's theory is the first one to disprove the belief that we are all perhaps all predetermined creatures existing within a designed hierarchy. So this concept that we are all part of a great plan by a higher being was very much directly challenged by, by Darwin's um, theory. Mm -hmm. On the origin, thus sparked a debate regarding the Christian creation myth and the emergence of man. If man was not created on the sixth day in the quote-unquote image of God and women did not grow from one of Adam's ribs, then where the hell did humans come from? It must be said that Darwin does not offer an explicit theory as to where humans may have descended from, but he drops a fair few hints throughout his work. He makes reference to what we could crudely call the quote-unquote ape-to-human theory, that we are the product of the evolution of primates. Thus began the search for what was referred to as the missing link, the in-between species between the early primates and humans. Now, some entrepreneurs saw this as an opportunity to make a few pounds. If we were to look at a cross-section of sideshow or freak show troops, there is a high possibility of a missing link act listed within their, oh, their retinue. That's a shame. But despite it... I know, it's not nice, is it? could be some poor soul that's maybe just got a slightly unusual shaped head. Yeah, or it was normally it was, it was also normally people that had any kind of like excessive hair growth as well, oh, like yeah. kind of excessive facial hair and stuff like that. It's a very cruel era, honestly. Um, but despite its demotion to an oddity, this scientific theory would remain a widespread topic within Victorian scientific circles. And here is where our story starts. <gasps> oh, so Charles Dawson 
born the 11th of July, 1864, died the 10th of August, 1916. A man with a rather apt name for this story <laughs> was a British amateur archaeologist. You couldn't make up the similarity between these two names. It's insane. Yeah. So in his formative years, he initially followed his father's footsteps and elected to study as a lawyer, but ultimately did not follow a career in this field. Dawson's true passion appeared to be that of the collecting and studying of fossils. Okay. So let us just sort of momentarily skip on through some of these, some of his achievements in mm -hmm. his career slash kind of hobby job. Um, hobby job? The co hobby, hobby job. Hobby job. I don't know. It sounds, it sounds like a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> a hobby job biscuit. There you go. <laughs> Um, so he was the co-founder of the Hastings and St. Leonard's Museum Association in 1889, one of the first voluntary museum friends groups in the UK. So that's quite, that's quite cute. In 1893, he presents the British Museum with a Roman statuette discovered at Beaufort Park, situated near Hastings. It were considered quite an unusual piece as it was, cra as it was crafted from cast iron. Oh, Ooh. There you go. Um, this same institution would award him the title of Honorary Collector and would be elected a Fellow of the Society of Antiquities of London in 1895. Dawson is perhaps best associated with more peculiar discoveries in the natural world, including presenting a petrified toad, reporting on the presence of a sea serpent in the English Channel, the discovery of an odd goldfish-slash-carp hybrid, and even observed a new species of human. Would you believe? What? Oh. Oh, yes, yes. So his strange knack for discovering these weird and wonderful things earned him, earned him the nickname the Wizard of Sussex. Please retain the phrase strange knack, quote-unquote, as it will be very pertinent yeah. to the conclusion of this story, people. I can see where uh, it's Doss going. You can see where this is going. Dawson's most famous find would be in 1912, and its mysteries wouldn't be fully unravelled until 2016. Oh, wowee. Yeah, so quite recent. On the 18th of December 1912, Dawson attends a meeting of the Geological Society of London. He had been handed a potential marvel. Workmen at the Piltdown Gravel Pit had presented him with a skull fragment in 1908. Ultimately, it were destroyed, however, as without any confirmation on its true nature, the workmen believed it to be a mere piece of fossilised coconut, and it was destroyed. Oh. Fair enough. Um, yet this loss of evidence did not deter the curious Dawson, he attending the site to recover further fragments of this skull. He presents them to Arthur Smith Woodward, paleontologist and keeper of the geological department at the British Museum. They elect to combine efforts to further this discovery. Dawson embarks on a solo dig at the site and he strikes lucky. Mm -hmm. He discovers more skull fragments and half of a lower jaw. After further scrutiny, Woodward declares that the reconstructed fragments do in fact resemble human remains, although not entirely. The brain size of this deceased individual would have been at least two-thirds less than that of a contemporary human. And with the exception of two molars, the lower jaw is in fact cannot be distinguished from that of a chimpanzee. 
From these findings, it is proposed that the Piltdown discovery is a potential missing link in the evolution of humans. So let's consider the evidence posed here. Okay. <clears throat> this individual evidently had a human-like cranium, but possessed an ape-like jaw. The remains were also discovered next to what could be described as prehistoric tools, quote-unquote, some believe to be derived from elephant ivory and bone. And it's quite convenient that these things should all be found together, isn't it? Of course, yeah. After all yeah, this time. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> After all this time, it's so lucky these things just turn up together. What this discovery does do, however, is support the contemporary thinking of the time that evolution commences with the development of the brain. Dawson and Woodward are, unsurprisingly, not without their critics. The Royal College of Surgeons procure copies of the fossils, and when they piece them together, what they discover is nothing more than that of a human skull. So, rather underwhelming discovery, mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest. French priest and paleontologist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin joins Woodward in his quest to uncover further fragments of the skull. They elect to search for the missing canines within the skull, as there had been previous criticism of their shape in relation to the diet that prehistoric humans were believed to have at the time. Yeah. And as luck would have it, uh, Duchardin finds a tooth that Woodward declares is absolutely perfect. The yeah. pieces are quite literally all coming together now with this oh, discovery. Wow. Could an amateur archaeologist have truly discovered evidence of the first Englishman? It must be said, however, that the case of the Piltdown Man caused many a professional and personal disagreement. Professor Sir Arthur Keith, Scottish anatomist and anthropologist, opposed some of the declared findings. Grafton Elliot Smith, an Australian-English anatomist, claimed that Keith's opposition to Woodward was fuelled by his own ambition. This all got a little bit heated, and it concluded with Cleath declaring that, quote, such was the end of our long friendship. So they're all oh. getting very catty over this skull. Oh, God. <laughs> get a grip. <laughs> it's all starting to get a little bit fraught between the sort of <laughs> British <laughs> academics down there. Um, however, it must be said, what a day this is for British science. The discovery of an early human on home soil. Or was it? <gasps> or I was think there's it a twist coming. It was Angus Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, in 1913, David Waterston, a Glaswegian surgeon and anatomist, publishes an account claiming that the Piltdown Man fragments are a clever combination of both ape and human remains. Waterston is the first to claim that this is all nothing more than a great big hoax. Mm-hmm. So we're going to skip on forward to 1923 and Jewish-German anatomist and physical anthropologist Franz Weidenreich examines the remains of the Piltdown Man. He accurately declares that they consist of a modern human cranium and an orangutan jaw with filed-down teeth. Scientists had long been debating the validity of the remains over the past decades and they were slowly becoming inconsistent with contemporary findings with regards to the early humans. So obviously in between these two time periods there is legitimate kind of progress being made in discovering yeah. the kind of early primates, kind of pre-human generations. Yeah. So this discovery of the Piltdown Man is starting to look less and less legit the yeah. kind of the more findings are coming out 
So it all comes to a head in 1953. So this is a very long going yeah. <laughs> investigation. In an issue of Time magazine, evidence collated by Kenneth Page Oakley, Sir Wilfred Edward Legros, Clark and Joseph Viner proved that the discovery of the Piltdown Man is nothing but a forgery. The fossil is nothing more than a fabrication. It is comprised of a human skull dating back to the medieval era, the 500-year-old lower jaw of an orangutan, and some chimpanzee teeth. Further microscopic examination reveals file marks upon the teeth. Someone had manually modified the shape of them. Now, it must be said that this was a colossal slap in the face for the British scientific community. Mm -hmm. Many refused to disbelieve the potential invalidity of the Piltdown Man remains, despite the fact that the evidence became overwhelming that it did not match contemporary findings. It is thought that there was a certain desperation for the establishment to have a quote-unquote first Englishman, and that this may have swayed critical judgment when it was most required. There was this kind of like race to be like, we've discovered one of the earliest humans and he was British because, you know, the Victorians were all about their Britishness yeah. at the time. <laughs> and the, the colonising and all that stuff, all their past Precisely. Times. Yeah. Um, the alleged fossil also played into the establishment beliefs of the time. It appeared to be exactly just what they were looking for to prove their theories. So it's a little bit more coincidental that people were putting out these ideas and they find these perfect kind of... Yeah examples of it yeah so just whom is the guilty party mcleish who do we think well do you think our man charles dawson is burying these things to then dig them up precisely so he is very much the prime suspect yeah. in this case so bournemouth university elected to re-examine dawson's antiquarian collection and donations and 38 of those specimens were discovered to be fakes or forgeries. So he's got previous on this, <laughs> it transpired. Okay. Included within this number was the alleged teeth of an early mammal, and these were also discovered to have been filed down as well. Mm -hmm. Critical publications of Dawson's also faced further scrutiny. Many of these were found to be either plagiarised, poorly referenced, or in some cases, both. So, yeah. not good. It was declared of Dawson's career that, quote, Piltdown was not a one-off hoax, more the culmination of a life's work. So, oh, bit, God. bit harsh. Yeah, drag um, him through the mud. Yeah, Tailhard de Chardin has also been named as a conspirator. Keith also found his name linked to the forgery and investigations all seem to point to a group of conspirators as opposed to kind of a lone forger. So it was very much a group effort mm -hmm. that went into doing this. Now, hoaxes have previously featured on this podcast. Who do we know of that would have loved to have got one up on the scientific community, particularly as they insisted on debunking the work of their beloved spiritualists? It wasn't... Arthur Conan Doyle was well into it. So... Oh, it was him? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, wait, so he... Wait, how, what was the question? So, yeah, so we, he very much didn't like the scientific community because he was into spiritualism. Spir yes, 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 um, yes, yes. So, Scottish author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was actually named as a suspect in oh, the Piltdown Man forgery. 
Leave I'm him not alone. even kidding. He's too busy <laughs> not with even the kidding. He's busy with the fairies. He doesn't have time for this. He's busy with the fairies. <laughs> <laughs> so Doyle had released the novel The Lost World in 1912. With a plot concerning the existence of prehistoric, prehistoric animals in a remote point in South America, many believed that he sort of cryptically alluded to his involvement with Dawson's forgery. He also, right. arguably, had great motive in doing so. Doyle was publicly at odds with the scientific community as he passionately defended, and very publicly passionately defended, his belief in the existence of the supernatural. Um, Dr. Chris Stringer, based at the Natural History Museum, says of Doyle's potential involvement, and I quote, Conan Doyle was known to play golf at the Piltdown site and had even given Dawson a lift in his car to the area. <laughs> but he was a public oh, yeah. man and very busy. And it is very unlikely he would have had the time to create the hoax. So there are some coincidences, but I think they are just coincidences. Alas, it does not appear that the Sherlock Holmes creator did have indirect, did have direct involvement in the hoax, but those coincidences are rather odd. Indeed. Mm -hmm. In 2016, after further research into the case of the Piltdown Man, Dawson was named as the sole perpetrator of the hoax. The remains showed undeniable signs of preparation and Dawson had clear motive. Stringer concludes, and I quote, When you look at the fossil evidence, you can only associate Dawson with all the finds and Dawson was known to be personally ambitious. He wanted professional recognition. He wanted to be a member of the Royal Society and he was after an MBE. He wanted people to stop seeing him as an amateur. And that is the case of the Piltdown Man. Fun. I have never heard of the Piltdown Man. Do you know what? I can't even remember, again, because it's been a little while ago, how I even came across this story. I remember I was sitting waiting to get my nails done, as you do. And... <laughs> I came across it. Was it, I think it was maybe an article or something shared by a museum, but it was when I read further into it and then Conan Doyle popped up, I was like, are you joking me? <laughs> he had his fingers in all the business. He was all about... He really did, honestly. Propping up whenever he can. And I saw this thing. It was this kind of crazy great hoax that was at a time was really considered that this discovery of this skull was absolutely the kind of first evidence of of the missing link. And then Conan Doyle pops up and he's like, he might have done it as well because he was around in the area and he didn't like the scientific community. And I was like, Arthur, mate, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what are you um, doing? Get back to your writing. But I just also thought it was a, such a, a quirky little story that all these scientists who had nothing better to do all started fighting over this skull and these teeth yeah. and they really did like if you really read into it they really did fall out with each other it was bad like the classic straight they were man. either there was like there was no kind of gray area for this this case it was kind of you thought it was real or you didn't think it was real yeah i just thought it was it was really really interesting the kind of the lengths that people will go to to kind of be seen as legit in their yeah in their fields so I love it. I love like Victorian period science. I find really interesting because it's a bit mad. A bit mad because it was still relatively primitive, but yeah. also groundbreaking. So like they had yeah. their groundbreaking moments, and then they had their absolute bonkers moments. 
So it's, yeah. like, it's such an interesting <laughs> period of his of scientific discovery. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, magic. Thank you very much for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. A Wee Bit Gothic is an entirely independent podcast researched by Hannah Brown. And me, Chris McLeish. Edited by Chris. And proofed by Hannah. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook to see episode-specific images. And until next time... Was that gothic? A wee bit. He was about to leave and let the fire fly. (laughs) I think I've put a typo. (laughs) He was about to leave and let the fireman. Okay, not the firefly. It says firefly. I've really, I've typed it. (laughs)